Um, but we are going to be uh, week six. This is the beast from the seas. And uh, so if you want to uh, get your outline, there is, as you see on the top of the outline, it says selected scriptures. So we're not going to necessarily read a passage of scripture this evening to start. But I wanted to, before we start the, the audio tonight, to just kind of give a real quick um, review from last night, uh, or from last Wednesday, excuse me. And um, last week we talked a lot about um, the history of the nation of Israel and that um, from um, really going all the way back to the garden, um, Satan has been on the attack to destroy the nation of Israel. Um, and at Genesis 3.15 gives us uh, the reason. So we read Revelations 12.4 last week, and, the, and, it, and this is what Revelations 12.4 says. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman. And so as we were in our study last week, we learned the dragon was uh, referencing Satan. And so his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth. And if you were here last week, uh, do you remember who uh, the woman was or is? Anybody? Israel, all right? You guys are so confident in that answer. Israel, so Revelations 12, 4, again, the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born, as soon as it was born. So the dragon being Satan, the woman being Israel, and who is the child represent then? Jesus, all right? So that one scripture uh, points out um, who Israel is, the woman referenced in Revelation 12, dragon being Satan, the child being Christ. And then if, so then if you reference that with Genesis 3.15, this is right after the fall of man, as Satan had deceived them. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Okay, so again, the reference to the woman being who? The nation of Israel, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. The seed of the woman shall bruise your head. Who is the seed of the woman then we're referencing? Jesus, all right? So it makes perfectly clear sense when you think of Genesis 3.15 and Revelation 12.4, why Satan want, want, wanted to and still wants to destroy the nation of Israel. Um, another translation puts it this way in Genesis 3.15, from now on, you and the woman will be enemies, as will your offspring and hers. You shall strike his hill, but he will crush your head. And so all throughout Scripture, Satan is attacking the Jews or the nation of Israel. And all throughout history, who is protecting the nation of Israel? God is, right? Um, so if, if uh, of course... Oftentimes in, in our current culture of politics, the, the idea of defending or not defending the nation of Israel is in question, right? Um, as a Bible believer, should we be on the side of defending the nation of Israel or not defending the nation of Israel? Okay, we should always be on the side of defending the nation of Israel. This is not a political statement. It is a biblical statement. Because I want to stand with who? God, right? So I'm on God's side. If you want to attack Israel, then you're not on God's side. That's basically what it's saying, right? So Genesis 12, 3 says this. I will bless those who bless you. Speaking of the Jewish nation, Israel, I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So if God wants to bless the nation of Israel, 
and those who bless the nation of Israel were blessed. Which side do you want to be on? Protecting Israel or not? Right? We want to, we want to be on the side of Israel because we want to be on whose side? God's side. All right? So um, history just uh, recounts all that, and that will kind of get us uh, started tonight. So we're looking at the beast from the seas. Chapter 6, The Beast from the Sea. Cabinet member ends crippling strike. The headline blared across the front page of the Times. The walkout had triggered a severe national crisis, virtually shutting down Britain for more than five weeks. The trouble had been building for decades. Several trade unions had merged, and this Union of Unions, as the amalgamation had been dubbed, gained a stranglehold on Britain's economy, making increasingly outlandish demands on behalf of the railroad workers, truckers, factory laborers, and petroleum refiners it represented. Production had dropped drastically while employers' costs rose, which forced them to increase prices, lay off workers, and go into substantial debt. Many businesses declared bankruptcy, while others teetered on the brink. When the Union of Unions demanded a 12% pay hike, six-hour workdays, and free childcare, the manufacturers finally balked, and a nationwide strike resulted. Truck and rail deliveries stopped. Petrol tanks dried up. Riots and looting erupted. Britain spiraled into chaos. On the day the crisis ended, the resolution was the top story on BBC News. The news anchor recounted the Prime Minister's attempt to intervene, ordering the strikers back to work and imposing stiff fines if they refused. When that failed, he mobilized the Home Guard to stop the rioting and restore order. The resulting deaths and injuries triggered widespread public resentment toward the Prime Minister. When a solution seemed impossible, the anchor said, an unknown junior cabinet officer, Judas Christopher, under Secretary of the Board of Trade, requested permission to meet with the heads of the unions and businesses. Within three days, he had hammered out what both sides called a win-win. We've just learned that Judas Christopher is about to emerge from the negotiating conference, the anchor continued. We'll go now to our reporter on the scene, Alison Lancaster. Alison's face appeared on the screen. Crowds at the Palace of Westminster milled about behind her. Thanks, Kent. Undersecretary Christopher's aide has promised us a brief interview. In fact, here he comes now. A tall, striking man in his early thirties walked toward the camera, flashing an engaging smile. He greeted Allison and the crowd warmly. Secretary Christopher, she said, what can you tell us about the agreement you have so miraculously negotiated over the past three days? Well, I... Can't go into all the details, but I can say that the heart of it involves no raises or shortened hours. Christopher's voice was golden, his articulation precise. Instead, he continued, we have tied wages to production. The business owners have guaranteed generous bonuses to every employee who increases his or her output. After Christopher flashed another winning smile and made his exit, Allison turned back to the camera. Though little is known about this junior cabinet officer, it seems that he is presently more popular than the Prime Minister himself. Back to you, Kent. Christopher's stunning success soon won him a widespread following. Not long afterward, he accused the Prime Minister of incompetency and hinted at an illicit affair. It was only a matter of time before the Prime Minister's government fell and Parliament elected Christopher Prime Minister by a landslide. 
A few days after his election, Judas Christopher addressed the nation from his office at Number 10 Downing Street, offering bold, unprecedented solutions to the severe inflation that had been spawned by the strike and by runaway welfare policies. A follow-up poll showed overwhelming approval for both Christopher and his plan. I've never seen anything like it, his aide said. You've got the British lion by the tail. Sure enough, Prime Minister Christopher's policies turned the country's economy around, solidifying his position as Britain's savior. Other leaders throughout Europe, caught in the same downward spiral, began to duplicate his policies, and soon their economies rebounded as well. But everything came crashing down when, in an instant, millions of people around the globe disappeared. The cars they'd been driving collided with other vehicles or spun off the road. Pilots vanished and their planes crashed, resulting in thousands of fatalities. Assembly lines clogged when factory machines were left unmanned. Two nuclear power plants exploded when operators vanished. Further chaos ensued. Retailers, manufacturers, law enforcement offices, and government agencies were paralyzed, with one-third of their employees missing. Hospital and nursing home patients died for lack of services and medical assistance. Without delivery personnel, store shelves were bare. Crime became rampant as starving people took matters into their own hands. The remaining citizens soon realized that it was only the Christians who had disappeared. This is terrible, Christopher's aide lamented. No sooner do you solve one catastrophe than another piles on top of it. No, it's an opportunity. Christopher almost sounded excited. We must never let a crisis go to waste. Get me on TV immediately. That evening, he outlined his solution to all of Britain. Declaring a national emergency, he drafted able-bodied citizens for one-year terms to fill vacated positions, reorganize businesses, protect property, and make repairs. Christopher immediately became the go-to man for other European leaders who were confronting similar challenges. On the heels of the mass disappearance, Israel was invaded by surrounding Islamic nations. With the Western nations in turmoil, most people assumed no one would come to Israel's defense. A major Middle Eastern war seemed inevitable, and pundits were convinced that Israel would not survive. Prime Minister Christopher called a meeting of his cabinet. We cannot allow the Middle East powder keg to explode. This war is sure to spread to other nations and unravel our success. The Jewish problem has plagued the earth since 1948, and every American president has tried to resolve it. It's time to defuse this volatile nation once and for all. Christopher flew to Jerusalem, and after conferences with both Israel and the surrounding Muslim countries, he announced the successful negotiation of a seven-year peace treaty guaranteeing protection to the Jews. There was much speculation about the secret deal he had arranged to pacify the Islamic states. During a lull in the negotiations, one TV newsman's mic caught Christopher saying privately to the Palestinian leader, Just sit tight for three years or so, and I'll see that you get your wish. Christopher's security agents immediately seized the reporter and confiscated his recording device. He was never seen again. Overnight, Judas Christopher became a hero to the Israelis. He solidified that position by declaring support for the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on the site of the recently destroyed Dome of the Rock. An astounded world lavished praise on him for yet another spectacular success. As a result of the treaty, the Jews immediately diverted defense funds toward the reconstruction of a temple that would eclipse the glory of Solomon's temple. 
In less than four years, they completed the masterpiece and restored the ancient Jewish worship practices. Four months after construction was complete, Clive Nelson, head of Britain's secret intelligence service, sat across the desk from Judas Christopher. As you know, Mr. Prime Minister, for some time now, we have been monitoring a buildup of troops and weapons in both Russia and Egypt. We've just learned that these nations intend to invade Israel within the month. Are other nations involved? Christopher asked. Yes, Syria, Ethiopia, and Libya will join Egypt from the south, and several allies will join Russia from the north. Israel has relaxed its military diligence since the treaty, and these nations are taking advantage of it. Does Israel know this? Yes, we have informed them so they can prepare. You should have consulted me first. Christopher slammed his fist on the table. I have no intention of honoring that treaty. It served my purpose at the time, but I will not risk my influence in the West in a war that offers us no advantage. In fact, keeping us out of this war will play into our hands. I'm very sorry, sir. I had no idea. Which is exactly why you must always check with me before you release information to other countries. Let the Russians and Muslims destroy Israel. It will save me the trouble of peeling that scab from the earth. The following day, the Secret Intelligence Service chief's car exploded when he turned the key in the ignition. As predicted, Russian and Muslim armies soon invaded Israel. They marched toward Jerusalem, prepared to crush the city. But before they could accomplish their goal, a massive earthquake struck. Sulfuric fires and boulder-sized hailstones rained down, decimating the invading troops. The troops who survived, blinded by the billowing smoke and dust, began firing on each other until only a staggering remnant was left standing. Israel, though severely ravaged, was saved. Judas Christopher wasted no time. The moment the battle ended, he marched into Libya, Ethiopia, and Egypt, three nations whose armies had been decimated, on the pretense of punishing them for violating the seven-year treaty. While he was still in North Africa, the secret intelligence service informed him that the Israelis, angered by his failure to defend them, were rising up in insurrection. Christopher immediately turned his armies northward and made a move that caught the world by surprise. He marched into Israel and put down the uprising, torturing and killing thousands of Jews. The day after the battle, the Israeli prime minister stood stiffly before Christopher, refusing the offered seat at the negotiating table. You have defeated us through betrayal. Please state your terms. He made no attempt to hide the contempt in his voice. My terms? Christopher replied. I offer no terms but total surrender. I intend to rule you with a rod of iron. You troublesome Jews will never again contaminate the world with your arrogance or flaunt your claim to be God's chosen people. My troops will occupy your nation and you will concede all power to me. Christopher returned to England, leaving the people of Israel angry but firmly in his grip. With his growing influence in Europe and his control of the Middle East, he was starting to be viewed as the de facto leader of the world, a role that had once been held by the president of the declining United States. But mere influence was not enough. Christopher's quest for outright power had only just begun. Prime Minister Christopher stared unseeing into the blazing fireplace. He rested his chin in his hands pondering his next move. Slowly, the room darkened until the flames 
flickering like the tongues of serpents, were the only source of light. The blaze shot higher, and soon Christopher could make out an image within it, a vague but undeniable form of a man towering over him like a smoldering Goliath. The form and face were as beautiful as an angel, but its features were twisted with agony. Christopher broke into a cold sweat. I know what you want, Judas Christopher. The voice spoke deep and low. You want power, more and more power, until you rule all the civilized nations of the world, and I can give it to you. Who are you? Why are you offering this to me? Christopher's voice quaked. I am the true prince of this world. All the kingdoms of the earth are mine, unwittingly forfeited to me by your primeval parents. You have long been my faithful servant, though you did not know it was I whom you served. What I now hold out to you, I have offered to only one other in the history of this planet. He refused, and he paid the price. But you can succeed where he failed. I know who you are talking about, Christopher said. Yes, you made him pay the price. But they say he was resurrected. And just as his master resurrected him, I can resurrect you. But how can you promise that? Christopher's fear refused to ebb, yet a craving welled up in his heart. I can assure you, because I will be with you. Indeed, I will be in you. Acknowledge me as your Lord, and I will fill your entire being with myself. I will be yours, and you will be mine. I accept. The words came quietly but fervently. The choice came easily. To refuse the one desire of his heart would be unthinkable. It is done, the presence said. Within moments the flame subsided, the darkness lifted, and Christopher found himself alone once more. When the European nations held their next annual congress, Christopher was the keynote speaker. His speech was magnificent, and the delegates responded with a standing ovation. Only minutes later, he stood on a balcony to address a huge crowd assembled at the pavilion outside the building. He smiled and waved expansively, and when the adulation subsided, he publicly renewed his commitment to the well-being and protection of Europe, calling for the European Union to merge as one united power and expand their armed forces to ensure mutual prosperity and security. At that moment, six rapid rifle shots rang out. Christopher's head jerked backward, and he fell to the ground. Sirens blared, and in moments, medics were rushing him to the nearest hospital. A half hour later, BBC reporter Alison Lancaster addressed a worldwide TV audience. According to doctors attending Judas Christopher, he has sustained mortal wounds. Recovery is impossible. Later that evening, Alison Lancaster again faced the TV cameras. For the first time in her career, her voice faltered on the air. Those of you who witnessed the shooting of Prime Minister Judas Christopher this afternoon will find what I'm about to report difficult to believe, 
She gripped the microphone in both hands, trying to hold it steady. The world watched him go down when the shots were fired earlier today, but a little after five o'clock, the Prime Minister opened his eyes, got out of his bed, and walked out of the hospital of his own accord. I have with me Dr. Nigel Anderson, one of the physicians who attended the Prime Minister. Dr. Anderson, how is recovery from such a wound possible? It's not possible, and yet it happened, the doctor said, shaking his head. The bullet went all the way through the Prime Minister's head, and yet he is alive. There is no rational explanation for it. The Congress of the European Union was still in session, and the day after Christopher's recovery, the leaders of the member nations met in secret. They forged a single dominion divided into ten provinces and nominated Judas Christopher as their president. His rivals, heads of three of the nations represented, resisted vigorously, but their delegations overrode them and Christopher won the election by a wide margin. Within a few weeks, one of the three resisting premiers died of food poisoning. Another was killed in a car accident. The third was found at the bottom of a hotel pool. Judas Christopher, now president-elect of the powerful ten-nation empire of Europe, returned to his London office and called Archbishop Damon Detheroe. Detheroe was a high-ranking church leader who was widely known for his work to unite all the world's religions. Christopher got right to the point. We have before us a golden opportunity, and the time is now. With your widespread religious influence and my political skills, we can work together to accomplish great things. I'm listening. The natural disasters over the past few years, the earthquakes, floods, famines, volcanic eruptions, sulfuric rain, hailstones, and meteor strikes, not to mention the disappearance of Christians, have shaken Western confidence in materialism and spurred people to reconsider religion. People are now wondering whether there's some kind of spiritual influence that could be the cause of these disasters. And like ancient primitive societies, they are beginning to think these spirits may need to be appeased. What exactly do you have in mind? People need a worldwide government, and I can provide it. They are also ready for a worldwide religion, and you can provide that. Their need for gods to assuage their fear gives us a perfect opportunity to combine our efforts. Together, we can create an irresistible force by which we can unite all people of the world as one. Nothing stood in Detheroe's way. He was now in the clutches of Judas Christopher's dark master. In the coming weeks, the archbishop formulated his plans, which were designed to ultimately redirect the world's worship toward President Christopher. First, the archbishop built a massive altar in Jerusalem, and like the prophet Elisha of old, called down fire from heaven to ignite the sacrifice laid upon it. Next, he created an enormous statue of Judas Christopher and placed it in the most holy place of the Jewish temple. With thousands of people watching on site and billions more observing online and on TV, he called for the image to speak in Christopher's voice and demand that all of humanity worship him alone. In response to these miracles, countless people around the globe turned to Christopher as their new god. Those who refused were hunted down and executed. Because the unrelenting disasters, both natural and man-made, had severely weakened every nation, Christopher knew the time was right to bring the rest of the planet under his control. 
Christopher's forces, a trans-European army consisting of legions of well-equipped, highly trained troops, invaded Russia first, where they met only token resistance from the country's ravaged armies. His conquest of China and India also proved surprisingly easy. And with these major Eastern powers defeated, the mere threat of invasion brought the rest of Asia under his flag. Christopher's takeover of the Americas was met with even less resistance. The United States, still weak from decades of crushing debt and unsustainable government largesse, actually voted to place itself under Christopher's leadership and impeach its own president. The Central and South Americans, equally plagued by internal turmoil, followed suit. With his worldwide conquest complete, President Christopher called Archbishop Detherow into his office. All the nations we've taken over are in economic chaos, he said. The world's most pressing needs are for financial stability and food. This is another crisis I don't intend to waste. We must exploit the situation to our advantage. I know you've been working on a plan to solve the economic crisis while at the same time secure the people's absolute religious loyalty. Let's hear it. Well, Dethero began, we cannot solve the economic problem unless we manage all the world's resources. That means we must track all trade to enforce equitable redistribution. We can accomplish this by assigning to every person an individual number that enables him or her to participate in commerce of any kind. This means everything from international manufacturing and shipping to buying a loaf of bread at the local market. That may address the economic problem, but what about the religious component? A condition for receiving the number will be a signed pledge to worship you and you only. We will devise a way to use the number to monitor their adherence to the pledge. And what happens to those who refuse the number? Christopher asked. Damon Dethero chuckled. <laughs> to paraphrase Thomas Hobbes, their lives will be nasty, brutal, and short. Archbishop Dethero's plan was a sweeping success. The only resistors were a few scattered Orthodox Jews and Christians, whom Christopher decimated with a reign of terror that eclipsed the French Revolution, the Sudanese Civil War, and the Rwandan genocide in brutality. Christopher quickly expanded his despotism beyond just Christians, and soon all the nations began to feel the weight of his cruelty. When the world realized that Christopher's promises meant nothing, his treaties were worthless, and their economic problems were actually multiplying, talk of rebellion fomented around the globe, and several nations began to assemble their armies to move against the dictator. Christopher dismissed the threats as idle talk and turned his attention to a project he had longed to accomplish since he came to power, the complete annihilation of the Jewish state. His hatred of the Jews had swollen like a malignant tumor until it consumed his every thought. Believing himself to be invincible, he assembled his massive armies and led them into Israel himself, intending to enjoy firsthand the slaughter of every Jew in the nation. But just as he positioned his forces for the attack, a coalition of North African forces led by Egypt attacked him from the south and fired the first salvos of rebellion. No sooner had he turned his armies toward the south than a coalition of Russian-led troops attacked from the north, 
Christopher repulsed the southern forces and was starting to drive back the northern attackers when yet another army of more than a million Chinese troops advanced on him from the east. Christopher's forces met the rebel armies on Israel's plain of Megiddo. Blood flowed in torrents as millions of troops perished. It was a battle of unprecedented scope and destruction. When the carnage began to subside, Christopher refocused his efforts on Israel. Leaving the Megiddo front to his generals, he marched a large contingent to Jerusalem. Upon reaching the city, he stood on Mount Olivet overlooking the object of his hatred. He delighted in the irony that this mountain was the very place where his master had inflicted unspeakable agony on his archenemy. Christopher raised his hand to signal the attack. At that moment, a thunderous noise erupted above him, and he looked up to see the cause of it. His day of reckoning was at hand. You guys with me still? Appreciate uh, Nathan back there. Nathan, were you the one that got to run after that? Dave. Dave got some exercise today, so uh, appreciate that, Dave. In case you weren't aware, I forgot to give them the CDs, and they started looking for them. <laughs> I realize they were there, so Dave got to sprint to my office and get them. So let's give Dave a hand. Good job, Dave. <laughs> if you saw him coming here looking for something, he was looking for that. So interesting. The... Um, we have about probably two hours worth of notes to get through in 15 minutes. So uh, you saw the outline I gave you also on the back of the outline has uh, a lot of information about the Antichrist that we will, uh, one of the reasons I went ahead and put that on there is because we probably won't get have time to look at all those. Um, and so kind of have that for you as a reference. Um, so we're just going to kind of try to quickly walk through uh, the outline. You see there on the outline has the uh, different names that uh, that um, the Antichrist has been uh, named, and so you can kind of, for your reference, um, is anybody, is it possible for us, as we look through Scripture, um, to identify who the Antichrist will be, yes or no? No, it doesn't, all right? So, um, one author said, if you know who the Antichrist is, then you've been left behind, all right? So, uh, it's, it's a bad situation, right? Um, here, just read a, a, a quote from the book. It says, it's not possible to know the precise identity of this future ruler. In the drama, it is given a name and a country of origin, but these details are fictional. He will, however, have a name, and he will likely come from some European nation, uh, referencing Daniel 2 and Daniel chapter 7. And we know what kind of man he will be, for the Bible gives us a wealth of information. So let's walk through this, and we're going to give you a lot of Scripture. I would encourage you, uh, I didn't have all the Scripture typed out on your outline there, so I would encourage you to write these down. And maybe as we get a quick um, flyover of these things, then you can go back and study them in a little more detail um, on your own. So under number one, his preparation is Daniel chapter 8, verses 23 through 24. It says, In this latter time... Of their kingdom, when the transgressor has reached their fullness, a king shall arise, have fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty. Uh, key, the next sentence says, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. And so I think kind of the part of the key parts of that verse is that 
uh, in the beginning of verse 23, says in this latter time, and uh, most exclusively, almost exclusively in Scripture, um, that reference latter times is referring to the tribulation period. Um, and then so it also says uh, he will have great power or he'll, he'll be mighty, but the power will not be of his own, right? So he will be empowered um, by Satan, right? Revelations 13.1, again, we're still under number one here, says, Then I stood, again, this is John in a vision, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads blasphemous name. Um, and so here's the reference, if, if you're kind of tracking your title of your outline, uh, says beast of the sea, that's where this is uh, referencing from. Um, sea, and uh, this is depicting, uh, really it's depicting Gentile nations, right? So beast from the sea being uh, a Gentile or non-Jew um, is where they're coming from. The seven heads here, most scholars would reference this as a reference to Rome, um, because of the seven hills of Rome. Um, and then the ten horns uh, being a reference, as it mentioned in the video, uh, to what, what will be a co coalition of ten European nations, right? So again, I know I'm going really quickly and giving you a flyover, uh, but that's number one, the preparation. Number two is presentation, right? So 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4, if you're writing that down. Verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. Uh, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin, and then I have in parentheses Antichrist, again, this is one of the references, his name, the man of sin, is revealed the son of perdition. Again, another name given to the Antichrist. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Um, probably not a very good idea, is it? All right, so he's going to present himself as God. Um, but in reference there, in uh, verse 3 of Second Thessalonians says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for the day will not come unless the falling away comes. And so the reference of falling away is really, uh, if you go into Matthew chapter 24, Again, if you want to write that down as a reference, Jesus also mentioning uh, the same reference of the falling away. Verse 10 of Matthew 24, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many and become lawless. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Paul also references in 2 Timothy 4, if you're writing this down, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 through 4. For the time will come when they not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their, their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to, to fables. To tables, yeah, to fables. Um, and so uh, really two things are going to happen before we see who the Antichrist is. Uh, one is the falling away that's referenced. Um, and so... Um, you know, it's easy for us even in our culture now to maybe even say that we may be in that period of time, right? Because uh, aren't we, uh, as, even as our nation, as, is what we would probably consider turning away from God, right? And so um, the, the second would be um, the Holy Spirit is removed, right? Uh, so two things will take place before the Antichrist really comes on the stage, the falling away 
Um, and number two, the Holy Spirit is removed. And the Holy Spirit will be removed at what event? The rapture, all right? So all believers will be gone. And, and so the Holy Spirit was mentioned in 2 Thessalonians. You, you might write this down, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy the brightness of his coming. So in this reference in 2 Thessalonians, we, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 through 8, we see that um, the Holy Spirit is restraining the lawless one, right? And so when the Holy Spirit is removed, as the church is removed from the earth, then the, the, that will set the stage uh, for the Antichrist. Um, so interesting question, maybe. Is, is it possible that the Antichrist is alive today? Yes or no? Yeah, it's, it's possible, right? Um, we'll leave it at that. Number three, his personality Revelations 13.5, we're going to go through these pretty quick. Um, Revelations 13.5, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Um, again, Daniel chapter 7 references um, what a great speaker and orator he is. Um, A.W. Pink says this about him, again, gathering from Scripture. The Antichrist will have a perfect command and flow of language. His oratory will, will not only gain attention but command respect. Right, so he's going to be a great speaker. Daniel 7, verse 20 says, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Okay, so this is a reference maybe to um, how good-looking he is, her stature, similar to the way um, King, uh, King Saul was described. Um, and then also Daniel 8, verse 23 and 25, reference his great intellect. Um, and so really just a brief description, if you want to look through those scriptures, Daniel 8, 23 and 25, talk about his personality. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time on that one. Uh, number four, his plan. Daniel 8, verse 25. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Daniel eleven twenty one. He shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Right? So initially, his plan will uh, be that of bringing about peace. Um, when you think about um, the rapture taking place, the world is going to be crazy, isn't it? I mean, you think the world is crazy now. It it's, doesn't even compare to the turmoil. And um, maybe just thinking in, even in um, recent history for us, when, when there's disasters or you, you've seen the looting on TV and all those things that have taken place, uh, think how much greater that will be when the rapture takes place. And so the world is going to be, the stage will be set for someone to take leadership um, and to offer peace. And uh, let, me, let me read a quote. This is from the Prime Minister of Belgium in 1935. And I think it perfectly depicts what the stage will be like um, after the rapture. It says, the truth is that the, and he's not referencing the rapture, but he's just referencing his period of time. But he says, the truth is that the methods of interna international committees has failed. What we need is a person, someone of the highest order or great experience, of great authority, of wide influence, of great energy. Let him come and let him come quickly. 
either a civilian or a military man, no matter his nationality, who will cut down uh, and, uh, the red tape, shove out all the committees, wake up all the people, and galvanize all the governments into action. Uh, pretty interesting description in it, but I think it's a description really of, of what they will be looking for when uh, the church is uh, raptured out. All right, so his plan number five, his pride. Again, we kind of already referenced this, but Revelations 13, verse 6. He opened his mouth and blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. <clears throat> Another reference, Daniel 11, 36 to 38. Daniel 11, 36 to 38. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what he has determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers, nor the desire of woman, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortress, and a god which his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Again, he will set himself up as God. Uh, number six, his peace treaty. Uh, his peace treaty, Daniel 9, verse 27. Daniel 9, 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Um, but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be uh, one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. All right? That's, again, Daniel 9, verse 27. So the, it says, He shall confirm a covenant or peace treaty with, uh, with many for one week. All right? Is, is the timeline there a reference of a week actually a week? Okay, what does that reference actually, what does a week actually mean in, in this context here? It's, it's seven years, all right? So this is the uh, reference to this, the 70 weeks in Daniel. Uh, we have already experienced 69 of those 70 weeks. We're waiting for the 70th week, which most scholars would say would, will begin when the rapture takes place. And so the scripture here in Daniel 9.27 says, so he's going to set up a week treaty, all right, which is referenced in uh, how long is that treaty actually going to be, all right, seven years. In the middle of that week, then he's going to break the treaty, all right, so the three and a half years. So you can see that kind of referenced on the backside of your um, outline there, uh, talking about the three and a half years, and then another side, I believe, is the other three and a half years. So it's going to set up. So again, when you think about this, even just logically, and you think about the world that's going to be in turmoil, it's going to be looking for a leader who can bring peace. He, empowered by Satan, will be able to bring that peace. He will bring uh, peace in the Middle East, which was everybody's going to be pleased with. And so everybody's going to look to him as this amazing leader. And then three and a half years into it, he will break his peace treaty. All right. Number seven, his persecutions. Revelations 13 verse 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over tribe, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, again, Revelations 13, verse uh, 7. Daniel describes it <clears throat> this way in Daniel 7, verse 21. Daniel 7, verse 21. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing 
against them. So again, when you see even in Matthew talking about the great tribulation is reference to the last three and a half years of the tribulation, when literally all hell will break loose. Uh, again, Daniel 7.25 says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. So he's going to unleash persecution on believers and on Jews as well. Again, um, a reference to what I've already mentioned, Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Verse 22 of Matthew 24, And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, for those days will be shortened. All right? And so how short will those days be that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24? Again, uh, talking of the great tribulation, referencing the last three and a half years uh, Revelation 13, if you want to write this down, Revelation 13, verses 4 through 5. Speaking of this period of the Great Tribulation, the last three and a half years, it says this, verse 4. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. All right, so again, the dragon being Satan, the beast being the Antichrist. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority, continue. For 42 months. All right. So again, the reference of uh, Matthew 24, Jesus saying that that shortened period would be this was referenced these 42 months of of hell, for lack of a better word. All right. So number eight, <clears throat> his power. Second Thessalonians 2 verse nine. Again, we've already referenced. I don't know if we referenced this particular scripture, but we reference where his power will come from. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. All right? So we've already gone, I think the week that I was, uh, was not here, Dave went over um, and taught through the two witnesses. And so um, according to uh, David Jeremiah, says two events will take place almost simultaneously with the breaking of the treaty. So at that three-and-a-half-year mark, uh, one will be the Antichrist will kill the two witnesses. Okay, that's referenced in Revelations 11, verse 7. And the other one is referenced Revelations 13, 3. The other event will be that he will fake his death and his resurrection. Right, again, the Antichrist is a, as a counterfeit, right? Satan is always trying, again, there's a list of those on your outline, Satan is always trying to counterfeit who God is. Um, Revelations 13, 3, uh, I'll read it for you. It says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Again, Satan does not have the power of resurrection. Only Christ does. And so this reference here, as you, if you caught what I, how I read it there, Revelations 13, 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, all right? So they're going to uh, deceive everyone. Um, and isn't that one of the names of Satan, right, the deceiver? And so they will deceive everyone to think. So two things will happen at that mark when he breaks this treaty, that there will be uh, the murder of the two witnesses, and, and I, I don't, I'm not sure I assume David referenced this, but I love, and I want to mention this in Revelations 11, 7, 
And when it talks about uh, the two witnesses being killed, it says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Uh, and the reference there in verse 7 says, When they finish their testimony. Um, again, is a reference to the sovereignty of God because uh, they will be finished with what God had them to do before this takes place. Uh, so these two events, the Antichrist will kill the two witnesses and they will fake his death and resurrection. Excuse me. Number nine then is profane. So again, we've referenced several of these, but Revelations 13, uh, verse four, they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? And so again, he's going to set himself up as God. Another refer uh, reference would be Revelations 13, verse eight. Uh, he will uh, set up some type of a mark, right? The mark of the beast. And exactly how that plays out, well, hopefully I will, and you won't be here to find that out. Uh, but Revelations 13, verses 14 through 18 mentions that, um, really, as you heard reference about, that uh, no one will really be a part of uh, commerce unless they receive the mark of the beast. And if they don't receive the mark of the beast, they will be what? They will be killed, right? And so we've referenced that as we talked uh, the, several weeks ago about the martyrs. Uh, number 10, his punishment. This is the best part, right? Amen. His punishment. Daniel 8, verse 25. Through his cunning, he shall cause the seed to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princesses. But he shall be broken without human means. What does that mean? He shall be broken without human means. God's going to take care of him, right? God's gonna, uh, going to, uh, what, what did the video it end, or the audio there just ended in his day of reckoning, right? Uh, Revelations 19, verse 19 through 21. Uh, I'm going to read verse 19. It says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then verse 20, then the beast was captured with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of the fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Who was him that sat on the horse, by the way? Jesus, right? This is the, the literal second coming of Christ. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. And so... Um, What's, what's the outcome of the beast here in Revelations 19, verse 20? He has a friend with him, the false prophet. And what is their outcome here? Thrown in the lake of fire, aren't they? Forever, for eternity. Second um, Thessalonians 2, verse 8, I'll reference real quick. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with his breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So Christ's return... His second coming will officially end the career of the Antichrist. He'll be defeated and destroyed, and then, as we read in Revelations 19, 20 through 21, thrown um, into the lake of fire. Uh, Revelations 20, verse 10. So they're going to get to enjoy their accommodations for a thousand years. Um, and after that thousand-year millennial reign, then they will have another guest in their their party in the lake of fire. Revelations 20, verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of the fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, Jesus wins in the end, doesn't he? Um, and that's where we, we rest in the power of Christ. Um, do you believe that hell is a real place and a place of torment? Are you thankful that uh, the grace of Jesus allows you to get out of hell? Um, to avoid that place? Th- then I think the question... Um, in, in fact, I was talking with one of you in here this evening before I got up here. Um, and, and the first week we started and kind of had the introduction to this series when we talked about the study of Revelation. If the study of Revelation doesn't encourage or challenge you to be a greater witness for Christ, then what's the point of it? Right? If we really believe that there is a literal hell and that people will be in torment for eternity, should it impact the way or if we do tell people about it? You know, the, and I've said this quote often, I don't know where it came from, um, if, if, you, if you know enough about salvation to be saved, then you know enough about salvation to tell people. Right? I mean, I think all of us feel like we don't, maybe we are scared or not confident enough. If, if you know how you got saved, then you know enough to tell someone. And the reality of what is going to happen, the eternity of someone that you know, that, that should have a bigger, bigger impact on our lives than probably it does. Agree? And so the challenge is not just to know information. The information should lead us to do something with it, to share our faith, to share the gospel, to share our story. And so I hope you're encouraged as we continue this study uh, to share your faith. Um, hell is a real place. And, and I, I don't think anyone in this room wants to go there. And I hope you don't want anyone else to go either. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this day. And Lord, I, I just pray that we would, Lord, as we're moved with emotion when we, when we look back on the day of our salvation, when we look forward to the day we will stand in your presence, the emotions that brings up in us, the emotions that we get when we think of our loved ones who are already there, Lord, may that, those emotions not just be emotions. May they lead us to action. Lord, that we have the message of the gospel. We have the gift of Jesus. We, we have the gift of eternity. And Lord, may we, we be willing to share it, uh, no matter the cost. Lord, may, may you give us courage, boldness, opportunities, And Lord, may we be on mission with you in in our workplaces, where we live, where we shop. And Lord, just use us for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.